crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them. Good morning, South Fellowship. It is great to see you. It's great to be back with you after two weeks ago teaching out at um, Cannon Beach on the coast in Oregon. And um, we are going to jump right back in. If you have your Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 5. We're continuing our series in the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, we are about six messages in. And let me give two disclaimers as we begin this morning. Number one, you got a, a service guide when you walked in. It has a outline to follow along with the message this morning. Um, if you'd like, you can make a big X mark over said outline and flip it over um, because there are three days in between when I made that outline and today, and God's done some different things in my heart and soul and um, in that amount of time, and so uh, I want to be true to where I sense God leading us. So, Flip it over, which if you know me, I'm a type A kind of guy, and that's hard for me to say. So, um, <clears throat> secondly, uh, we are going to be dealing with an issue this morning that may be the, an issue that has more pain surrounding it than anything else right now in our culture. And the byproduct of it has destroyed many lives and many marriages and um, here's going to be my approach. I, I, I want to take as pastoral an approach as I can to this subject that's difficult, and many people wrestle with it, but I also want to hit it head on because I believe that Jesus wants to bring some freedom this morning, and I believe that the scriptures want to invite us uh, to live more in the kingdom of God, and I believe that's possible for us. So let's pray and ask that God would invade this space of our hearts and lives and minds this morning. So Spirit of God, we ask that you would do what we cannot do by willpower alone. Lord, we don't want, um, we, we don't want the enemy's voice of condemnation in our ear, so we rebuke that voice. Lord, we, we do receive your conviction in order to lead us to a better way. And so, Lord, help us discern those two voices in our own hearts and minds, and let us move in line with your spirit as you lead us to life. We pray this in the name of Jesus, and all God's people said, amen. amen. When I was 10 years old, I had a friend of mine invite me to go to his parents' beach house in Oceanside, California. We were living in Orange County at the time, and we were good friends from school, and so my parents let me go, and we went down there, and he had this tent in the backyard on the, sort of on the patio of their beach house, and we were sleeping out on that, in that tent. And I can remember vividly him grabbing a stack of Boys Life magazines and us walking into the tent, and he told his mom, we're just going to be looking at these Boys Life magazines, and we'll go to bed shortly after that. Well, in addition to the Boys Life magazine, there was a Playboy magazine tucked in, which was, I guess, man's life at the time. I don't know. And um, I can remember for the very first time in my life, I was 10 years old. 
and I saw pornography for the very first time. And so I'm, I'm almost three decades removed from that. And I can tell you, I can, those, those images are still with me. They, they did something to me. They, they messed with me. They, they sort of, I guess you'd call it, they imprinted themselves on my imagination. And that's not a unique story. And it's certainly not a unique story for people, for kids that are growing up in today's day and age, where pornography is a $97 billion industry worldwide. $97 billion industry. That somewhere between 10 and 30% of our vast internet is consumed with pornography. That's probably on the low end. That 90% of boys, catch us, 90% of boys and 60% of girls are exposed to internet pornography by the age of 18. Pornography sites attract, listen to this, more than Amazon, Netflix, and Twitter combined. Combined. There's even a, a song in a Broadway musical entitled, The Internet is for Porn. And in large part, that's what we see. Now, here's, the, here's a question I want to ask. On a, on a fundamental human level, why is there a market for this? Like, why, why do these things exist? Why? $97 billion industry. Why? And here's the answer. Because you and I, as human beings, were designed for intimacy. We long for it. It's wired into the fabric and fiber of our beings. There's no person that walks the face of the planet that doesn't long for intimacy. You can go back and you can read it in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 and Adam and Eve being wired to, for life together and sin fractures that and instead of being naked and unashamed, they're hiding and covering themselves. But originally, they're designed to walk with one another. It's wired into the DNA of being human. Nobody escapes it. But when those desires go awry, and they have, when those desires go wrong, when those good, God-given desires get distorted, we start using what God intends for intimacy, and we start turning it on ourselves and using it for gratification. But the desire is still there, and the desire is still good. See, our design, God's design for us, design for intimacy, is carried by our desires, the desires are part of what make us human. It's not even necessarily our sexual drive that makes us human. It's, it's our drive for intimacy, our longing to be known, to be valued, to be loved. So what happens when a good, God-given desire gets distorted? What happens when it gets off the rails and when it goes wrong and you do know you do know that one of the enemy's greatest tactics in our life is to take what God's designed for good and to twist it and use it for evil. So, so what happens when the good God-given design gets distorted? Let me put it another way. What happens when our soul gets unhealthy? What happens when our heart gets sick? Here's what happens. We turn love into lust and we turn people into objects. That's what happens. And Jesus, you may be not, not all that surprised if you've read through the Sermon on the Mount, has strong words about that. So 
Let's let this rest on us. Remember, let's try to engage without the voice of condemnation, but with an invitation to conviction. Here's what Jesus says. You have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, you may not hear this kind of stuff talked about a whole lot in church, but Jesus addresses it very head-on nearly 2,000 years ago. And can we all just take a moment and admit, maybe our methodology has changed a little bit, but the motivations of the human heart have remained the same. Yes? I mean, this is a word that we need to wrestle with today. You've heard that it was said, Jesus says, teaches, And what he's doing is he's falling in line with where Dan led us last week. He's addressing six commands that the Old Testament has held up. And he's inviting people to a new way of wrestling with this. He says it's a a righteousness that surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees. You've heard that it was said. Where did they hear it said? It's part of the Ten Commandments. It's commandment number seven that you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you, Jesus says, and his point is, you can be technically true to honoring the command and still have a heart that's rotting on the inside and still have a sickness that's unaddressed. See, Jesus wants to teach people what fulfillment of the law or a righteousness that surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees actually looks like. How many of you have seen uh, one of these pictures of an iceberg taken from underwater? Anyone? I think it's a good image for Jesus's you've heard it said statements. You've heard it said you shall not commit adultery and we could sort of place that on the top. That's what you can see. And you can check that one off pretty easily, and you can go either, I have or I haven't done that. But Jesus wants to get underneath. Jesus wants to get to the core of our humanity. He wants to get to the reason that anybody would commit adultery. And he goes, well, there's something going on in your heart and in your life. There's something beneath the surface. And he goes, let's talk about, let's talk about that thing. Let's not just talk about the behavior and the action. Let's talk about the heart. Let's talk about the motivation. Because you do know that everything you do, everything you think, every action you execute comes from your heart. Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23, I think says it well. It says, above all, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. There's, there's no such thing as a, whoops, that, was, that wasn't me. That was completely unlike me. Have you ever heard somebody say, have you ever said that to yourself? You know what Jesus would say? No, 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 that's exactly like you. Do you know why? Because you did it, right? And we often want to run from that, and we want to try to sort of polish it up, and oh, that's completely unlike me. And Jesus goes, no, 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 unless you actually look at who you're becoming, you will never change the rhythms of your heart. You can keep covering that up. And sort of relegating it to the side, rationalizing it, justifying it, theorizing it. But it is you. You know why? You did it. And that's okay, right? 
For out of the heart, Jesus says, comes evil thoughts. They come murder, adultery. So he's going, that's coming from somewhere? That's coming from the inside. Sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, which we'll talk about next week, and slander. And Jesus wants to address those things head on. But his first thing he says you want to realize is, these are all coming from underneath. They're coming from a soul. They're coming from a heart that's grown sick, from desires that have gotten off track. Good God-given desires gone astray. Now, I think it's going to be helpful for us as we engage this text to take a moment to try to wrestle with what Jesus is not saying, okay? So here's what Jesus is not saying, and I want you to lean in because we get this twisted oftentimes, and it takes us to some strange places, okay? So Jesus is not teaching that our sexuality is bad. He's not teaching that our sexuality is wrong. He's not. God is the designer of our sexuality. It's his idea. There are parts of your body that are, their only purpose is to serve for physical pleasure. And God goes, that's all me. Like, I wired that into you. That was my idea. You're welcome. <laughs> right? Mic drop God out. Okay? So he's not saying that Jesus is not saying that sexuality, our sexuality is wrong. It's God's design. God is not anti-sex. He's the most pro-sex being in the universe because he's the designer of it all. Jesus is not saying that an acknowledgement of beauty is wrong. There are some people who are physically, very physically attractive. You're welcome. You know, honestly, I was praying, Jesus, man, just please give me some moments to just come up for air during this. So, like, there's one. Some people, but you do know, you do know that um, beauty is culturally, a culturally influenced thing. When um, Aaron was telling me that when they were getting ready to send people to Africa, part of their Journey Corps team, they said, you just need to realize that in Africa, many of the women are going to be walking around without shirts on. And that's like just a thing there. It's not a sexual thing for them. It's just, they just walk around without shirts on. But ankles, ankles are a thing. So make sure you wear socks because you don't want to cause men to stumble. Shirt, optional. Socks, not optional. That's for free, and that's in Africa, not here, the opposite here. But what Jesus says is, listen, every, we were all created in the image of God, and acknowledging beauty in other people is not wrong. Third thing he's not saying. He's not some saying that temptation is sin. He's not saying temptation is sin. And in the, in the book of James, James makes this really clear. Here's what he says. He says, but each person is tempted when they're dragged away by their own evil desire. So so desire that's gone wrong, and they're enticed. And after desire has conceived, it gives birth to what? Sin. So certainly temptation can lead to sin, but it doesn't necessarily. In fact, the scriptures are really clear in saying that Jesus was tempted in every way and yet was without sin. So that initial attraction, that desire for another person can be stopped at that point without it becoming sin. So here's the question. What 
is Jesus saying? What is Jesus saying? Well, let's look at what he says. He says, but I tell you, anyone who looks at a woman, this is in the NIV translation, who looks at a woman lustfully has already, already committed adultery with her in his heart. I think the ESV gets a little bit close to what's going on in the original and the Greek, and here's what the ESV says. But I say to you that anyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. There's three words that drive what's going on in this part of the text. The first is the word look. Now, there's multiple words for look in the Greek language. The word that Jesus uses means to look with the intention of holding on, and you could almost picture it as tracing somebody's physical body with your eyes. And that's that's what Jesus is talking about. Not just to see, but to look and to hold on and to trace. There's another word in the Greek. It's the word pros. Will you say that with me? And it's not translated into the NIV, unfortunately. It's a causal statement. It means to look with the intention to. And that's a really important part of what Jesus is teaching. He's talking about a choice that someone makes, to look and trace with the intention to, and then he says, lust, which is sort of a church word. We don't hear that a lot in our culture anymore. I'll talk about that in a moment. But it's sort of a churchy word, and here's what it means. It's a compound word. It means to hold on to or to imagine, or you could even translate it to focus on, and then the second part of that compound word is with passionate desire, with passionate desire. So in Jesus' terminology, lust is a desire to possess. It's It's an intention to dominate which then inflames to a coveting desire. So when a man lusts after a woman, he takes the mystery of personhood and reduces her to a consumer item and covets her as a thing rather than a person. Now, um, I, I believe Jesus is talking uniquely and specifically to men, and, um, and so we'll teach it as such, but I just want you to know that pornography, lust, is not just a male issue. You know that, right? That even recently, it's become more and more a female issue in our culture, in our day, in our time. I don't know if that would have changed the way Jesus taught it if you were teaching it today, but he teaches it uniquely to men in this situation. Maybe for women who are a little bit less visually inclined, it might read something like, a woman who lusts or passionately desires after a man, she usually covets riches or power or fame or things like that. But what's going on here is not only a desire that gets off track, but a God-given imagination that we all have that really is a beautiful thing. It moves culture forward. Imagination is why we have rockets that go to the moon. It's why we have all sorts of inventions all around us. It's because people have the ability to dream up new things. But you do know that that good God-given imagination has the ability to take us to some dark spots too. And Jesus is saying that's what's, that's what's going on. Okay. 
One more side note about what Jesus is not saying, and he's not saying that lust and adultery are equal. He's not saying they're the same thing. Don't, don't flatten what Jesus is saying and equate lust after a woman and doing something horrific to a child. Those are not the same thing. And Jesus isn't teaching that they are. He's saying they both come from the same place. And that an unhealthy heart, here's what Jesus is teaching, an unhealthy heart turns love into lust and human beings into objects for gratification. And that's the pattern. It's a heart that gets unhealthy or fractured by sin. We have a distorted desire. And then instead of loving somebody, we lust after them and sort of identifying them as a gift from God and carrying the image of God. We objectify them and then use them for our own gratification. But underneath it all, it's this longing for intimacy. And here's the way that G.K. Chesterton put it, sort of famously now. He says, the man who knocks on the door of the brothel is really looking for God. Is, is that, that's the longing. That's, that's what's underneath. There's a great book. I'd highly recommend it if you're interested. It's a book by Michael Cusick called Surfing for God. Surfing for God. And he plays off of this idea. But friends, the truth of the matter is that you and I live in a day and a culture and a time where we couldn't be on more different pages than Jesus, right? Because Jesus says, no, 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 war against lust. And we say, no, 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 just, just go with it. It's no big deal. I mean, the, identified by the reality that you cannot find somebody outside of religious circles who talks about the damage that lust causes in the lives of people. It's, it's not even in our public vernacular anymore. You mention it to somebody who's not a follower of Jesus, and they'll look at you like you're growing a third eye. It's not a part of our public discourse anymore. And here's, let me, let me sort of do some cultural diagnosis with you. In the 1960s, we had the sexual revolution, and it was a movement of free love, and the mantra of the sexual revolution is, do whatever you want with whomever you want, as long as it doesn't hurt anybody. But I don't think we stop long enough to recognize whether or not we're hurting ourselves and whether or not we're hurting the, actually hurting the people around us. I, I don't think we've thought well enough about that truth. And so now in our day and time, you have this month, the ESPN just released the, their uh, body issue of their magazine, and it's, it's sort of soft porn, right? It's not, it's not explicit, but it's definitely a gateway drug. You don't have to say amen. I'll say it for you. We have Game of Thrones, which is one of the most popular TV shows on television. And, I, and, and I, I'm not here to heap guilt on you, but I'm just going to, I, it was popular, so I hopped on to watch it. I made it through half of an episode and thought, this is, this is essentially pornography. And it's the most, one of the most popular shows we have right now. Just this last week, a website entitled Ashley Madison sent to USA Today their list of cities that had the most member signups per capita during a 2017 period. Any guesses what Denver ranked? Second. Second. 
and it has 50 million members today. Their, their tagline is the global leader for affairs. Okay, so we're going to go a little bit deeper into this, okay? So just take a deep breath. Um, a little while back, I read an, an article on Vanity Fair magazine because that's the way I roll. And um, <clears throat> the article was entitled Tinder and the Dawn of the Dating Apocalypse. The subtitle was As Romance Gets Swiped from the Screen, Some 20-somethings Aren't Liking What They See. And listen to a few of the quotes from people. And I just, we just need to get into this world because what I realized is that I was blissfully ignorant of a world that most of our young adults are growing up in. Here's what the author says. Or he's interviewing people who are in a New York nightclub. And one of the participants in this interview says, with these dating apps, he says, you're always sort of prowling. You could talk to two or three girls at a bar, pick the best one, or you could swipe a couple hundred people a day. The sample size is so much larger. It's setting up two or three Tinder dates a week, and chances are sleeping with all of them so you could rack up a hundred girls you've slept with in a year. He goes on to say, a lack of intimate knowledge of a potential sex partner never presents him with an obstacle to physical intimacy. So we may know each other's name, but that doesn't mean that we can't hop in bed with each other. One guy says, I sort of play that I could be a boy, boyfriend kind of guy, quote unquote, in order to win women over. But then they start wanting me to care more, and I just don't. In February, one study reported that there were nearly 100 million people, perhaps 50 million on Tinder alone, using their phones as a sort of all-day, everyday, handheld singles club where they might find a sex partner as easily as they'd find a cheap flight to Florida. Like ordering food, says one guy, but you're ordering a person. The article goes on to say that there's a deep lament in the souls of the people who are in this world going, it's, it's, it's not getting the job done. It's not satisfying. There's this soul loneliness that we've entered into and we're having a hard time recovering from. They, they call it the dating apocalypse. And here's what's happened. We've equated love with lust. But listen to the way that the scriptures defined love and then imagine how different this is from what you just heard. Love is patient, not immediate. It's kind. It doesn't envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it does not, what? Dishonor others. It's not self-seeking, it's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. It's not self-seeking, which everything I read in this article was self, 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 me, 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 more, more, more. And honestly, you guys, that's the anthem of the lustful heart. If you get underneath it all, it's the crying out for me. Love doesn't delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, and always perseveres. Here's the core human problem Jesus is addressing. We use what God intends us to love, and we love what God designed to be used. Think about that for a moment. We use what God designed to be loved, 
and we love the stuff, the physical possessions. Patient with those. We're kind with those. We keep no record of wrongs with those. But those weren't designed to be loved. And what Jesus is pushing back against, because remember all, of, remember, all of this is in the context of how do we live life in the kingdom of God? How do we live life under the rule and the reign of Jesus? And what Jesus is saying is that it's impossible to live in his kingdom when we objectify his crown creation, which is humanity. Let me say that again. It's impossible to live in the kingdom of God when we objectify his crown creation, human beings. But I do think we're starting to see the cracks in our prevailing modern-day philosophy, okay? I think we're seeing the cracks in people raising their voice in, in this Me Too movement, saying we don't, we, no longer will we be silent when um, people run their desire and lust to the extreme and take advantage of other people. So 81% of women surveyed would say that in some way they've been sexually harassed in their lifetime, 43% of men. And so you had this explosion at the end of 2017 in the Me Too movement of people raising their voices and going, it's not okay. We're breaking the silence. I think we're seeing the, the cracks in it in people like Jeff Brodsky and Joy International and a number of great organizations around the world who are fighting and advocating for the ceasing of child trafficking, which is praise the Lord, right? But remember, those all come from a heart space that's convicted or convinced that it's all about me and I can objectify God's crown creation without it affecting me at all and use what God intends us to love. I think we're seeing the cracks and the rise of things like pornography-induced sexual dysfunction or erectile dysfunction. It means that someone's watched so much pornography that they're no longer stimulated by a live person. It's a thing. It's a, it's a popular thing. And, and I don't even, I didn't do enough research on this, so I'm just going to throw it out there. Who knows where the development of artificial intelligence and our sexuality and our desire for lust, who knows where that's going to head? That's the second frontier. That's the new frontier after swiping and dating apps. And I just, we've just got to start addressing it on a heart level, you guys. We've got to start addressing it on a heart level. I think the theme song for the rising generation is, I can't get no satisfaction. I try, and I try, and I try, and I've tried everything, and I can't get no satisfaction. And the reason is because those desires were designed to be channeled in one direction, and we've driven off course. And so Jesus even, he has such strong words for this in this next section, which we'll get to in just a moment. He describes that reality, the heart that's consumed with lust as, as hell, or Gehenna. And if you've, ever, if you've been in the position where you're, you're actively fighting against lust, and you don't seem to be winning, you read Jesus' words and go, that's exactly what it's like. It's like a fire on the inside that I just can't put out. So we're, we're waging war on our own souls, and we are winning, or losing, I guess, depending on how you look at it. 
Listen to what Jesus says. So if you're asking, okay, well, Paulson, I agree, and what should we do about it? Listen to what Jesus says. So if your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right eye causes you to stumble, cut it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Now, I just did a brief survey. When you guys walked in, most of you have both eyes and both hands, which I just want to affirm is a good thing. <laughs> like, we're not going to have a station out in the lobby where it's like, come cut off your right hand and we'll surgically remove your right eye. And that's, that's not what Jesus is saying. And oftentimes we say, we take the Bible literally. Have you ever heard somebody say that? Did they have both eyes? <laughs> just saying. So I think it's better for us to say, rather than we read the Bible literally, we read the Bible intelligently. And we try to figure out what Jesus is saying. I think what Jesus is saying is, hey, listen, if you could address lust just by tackling physical things, here would be your methodology. Pluck out your eye, cut off your hand, But if Jesus was being serious about this as a methodology to combat lust, he forgot one body part that you could cut off that would deal with most of the problem. (laughs) Just saying. And it's not what he's saying. It's not what, in fact, I think what he's, it's a Hebrew idiom. You can read him, use it again in Matthew chapter 18, verses 8 and 9. I think it's sort of, I bet he sort of chuckled after he said it. Like, you guys all have both eyes and both hands, he says to the Pharisees. But even that, even that wouldn't work. That wouldn't work. Because the problem's on the inside. The problem's deeper. Now, You can't just, quote-unquote, cut it off, as he says, and solve the problem. I think the bigger question is, how do we become the kind of people free from lust? What does it look like for us to live in the way of Jesus with the heart of Jesus? Because Jesus is for freedom. Jesus is for intimacy. Jesus is for the value of all people. Jesus is for healthy, vibrant, life-giving sexuality, not the cheap substitute that we often settle for. So if we read this and go, well, the goal is to avoid adultery, not Jesus' goal. If we read this and we go, well, the goal is to not lust, and, but how many of you, a game plan for not lusting to, is sort of revolving around, I'm just going to try really hard not to lust. Has that worked for anybody ever? I just haven't met him yet. I haven't met him yet. So what do we do? Don't do it. Doesn't seem to be cutting it. See, everything flows from the heart. But let's step back and ask the question, how do we shape and form our heart so that what flows from it is the life that we long for? Okay. So here's the thing. I know that this is a struggle for many people, statistically many people in this room right now. So allow me to enter into your life a little bit 
And a lot without, without the guilt and the shame that the enemy wants to heap down on us, let's enter into this with a sense of conviction and say, Jesus, where do you want to poke, where do you want to prod at my heart and my soul to lead me forward? Here's what it looks like, I think, to fight for our heart. Because Jesus is saying we should take it seriously. I think first we've got to admit that in some ways all of us are sexually broken. This isn't a unique thing for some people. This is a human reality in a broken world. It comes out, it exhibits itself in different ways. But we all carry wounds. And we have to be more aware of what's going on in our heart and our lives. Okay? We can't just be carried along with just desire without ever discerning if it's healthy, if it's God-given. We've got to become aware that there's probably some things from our past and there's probably some things from our present that bring about some semblance of brokenness in our life and we've got to bring those things to God instead of just, as Jeremiah chapter 2.13 says, instead of just digging cisterns that won't hold water, we've got to bring them to God and bring our brokenness to Him. Look up at me for a second. He can handle your brokenness. He can handle it. As dark as it is, as painful as it is, he's God. He can handle it. And that's the first step in the journey. All healing comes through honesty. Second, here's what Jesus would say, what the scriptures do teach. Flee from sexual immorality. Flee from it. In 2 Corinthians, or 1 Corinthians, sorry, uh, chapter 6, verse 18 through 20, Paul's writing to a church that's primarily made up of people who are coming out of um, cultic prostitution religious practices. So you had people who served as prostitutes in the temples to the pagan gods. You had people who would visit the prostitutes to the, in, in the temples to the pagan gods. And, and now they're called the church. You think that might be a little messy. And here's Paul's advice to them. Here's his, here's his command. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside of their body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temple of the Holy Spirit who's in you, whom you've received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your Here's his point. Here's his point. Do not think that your willpower will overcome your circumstances. Don't think that your willpower will overcome your circumstances. There are certain things that we do that just lead us. They're like the pathway into falling. Like here's some for me. I just know that on Instagram, I cannot push that search feature. I can't. It's just, it's a rabbit hole of destruction for my own soul. I know I can't do it. For some people, it may be you need to get some sort of nanny software on your computer. For some people, it might mean that you start thinking through whether or not you actually have a smartphone. I know you don't think you can live without one, but for for some people, a dumb phone might be the smartest idea you've ever had. Here's the way Martin Luther said it. You cannot keep birds from flying over your head, but you can keep them from building a nest in your hair. (laughs) And then I saw this picture on a bathroom door this week, and I thought, the Lord is in this. The Lord 
is in this. Third, here's what we do. Here's what we do. We cultivate healthy intimacy. We cultivate healthy intimacy. Did you know that if you're married, the Bible commands you to have sex with your husband or wife? I thought somebody would say amen, okay? <laughs> it's a command. That we would say in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul would say, don't deprive each other except for a certain amount of time to pursue God in prayer, but don't deprive each other. And he says this, he says, why, why would you not deprive each other so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control? So what the scriptures are saying is just know that what you do with your physical body has an influence on your spiritual life, number one, and know that when you're deeply satisfied in a, in a relationship with your spouse, the devil has less room, he still has some room, but less room to attack. So, part of your practices might be have more sex if you're married, okay? Shouldn't throw it out there, right? But also recognize within this passage that the enemy attacks us when we're weakest. When we're weakest. So my guess is if you're married, the time you're most tempted is when you're fighting with your spouse. If you're single, the time that you're most tempted is probably when you're struggling with loneliness, there's a desire to want to be married or to want to have somebody that you share that with. To the single people in the room, I would say that the same thing applies. Cultivate healthy intimacy in friendships, relationships. Know when you're tempted and fight. That's what Jesus would say. And finally, finally, and I think most importantly, and I've chosen to put this last because we're going to come to the table in a moment the best thing you can do to keep your soul healthy is worship. The best thing you can do to fight against lust is to remember who Jesus is and to discipline your soul to worship him in good seasons and in bad. The scriptures say, really clearly, that we love because he first loved us. So if you want to love God more, remember his love for you more. Friend, you are a child of the most high God. You are deeply loved. You are deeply cherished. You have been made holy by his grace and his mercy that's been showered down on you. And the person who walks in the most freedom is the person who has the most confidence that they're loved not because of anything that they've done, not because of anything that they've earned, not because they can check so many boxes because they've gone so many days without doing fill in the blank. That's not why. That's not it. We feed on the reality that we are loved simply because we are called children of the Most High God and we have been showered down by His grace. That's it. That's it. If you're struggling with lust, remember that you're loved. And then remind yourself again, and again, and again, because that is a slippery truth. So what do we do? We're going to come to the table in just a moment, but maybe today, and I'd invite you, you can put away your notes, we're done. Maybe today is just a time of saying, Jesus, this, is, this has gotten into my heart and soul, and I don't want it there. And I want to bring it to you. Maybe today, it's a recognition. Did you know one of the best spiritual disciplines you can 
embrace if you're struggling with lust is fasting. Fasting. Because we remind our soul that our body doesn't control us. We start to rewire parts of our brain to go, no, no, I don't, I don't need that. I can, I can feed on something a little bit different. So maybe you say, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hit this head on and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fast and I'm going to... Or maybe we, we go a little bit different direction and we say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to participate in the Barefoot Mile coming up on July 21st in order to advocate against where this leads. It's a discipline to say, I just, I want to engage the issue. I want to engage the issue. The best thing I can tell you, though, is feed on divine love. And people for 2,000 years who call themselves followers of Jesus have been coming to this table to remind themselves that in the midst of the battle, in the midst of walking around the wall thinking it's going to fall and it doesn't, in the midst of the struggle, that they are still people that are loved. And the ploy of the enemy is to heap guilt and shame on us to try to tell us we aren't loved. And it just goes deeper and deeper and deeper down that downward spiral. As you come this morning, remember you are loved. The table's open to anybody who says they're a follower of Jesus, who's repented and entered the kingdom, giving Jesus their life, making him their rabbi and their Lord. The table is open to all who would come. Let's pray. So Jesus, we do. We take this teaching of yours seriously. We want it to rest on us with a, with a sense of weightiness, but not weightiness that brings condemnation. A weightiness that brings conviction. Would you do heart work in our life this morning as we come to your table? Would you remind us who we are? Would you remind us whose we are? And we, would you lead us to the freedom that we have in you. We love you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. I'm going to invite you, as we've been doing the last few weeks, to exit to your left, to the aisle that's to your left, and to come around, receive the elements, and then you can walk back to your spot, going back the right on the right side. And you can take and eat the bread whenever you so feel led as a symbol that you're in a relationship with Jesus that's, that's unique, that's personal, that's yours. But would you save the cup as we remember that this is a journey that we're all on together and we'll take that as a, as a community. So as you stand up and you can sing this song or you can kneel and prepare your heart and your life, I would wait for the row that's in front of you to go. And then as they go, if you're in back of them, you can follow them out. Let's come to the table too.